Hi, everyone. It's time for another edition of Ask Jeff. There have been lots of constitutional issues in the news, so send me the ones you find most interesting, and the team and I will answer as many as we can soon. The deadline is May 29th, Memorial Day, so don't wait. You can submit anonymously at bit.ly forward slash askjeffpodcast, or if you incline in a different direction, you can tweet the questions using the hashtag AskJeffNCC. Or just email them to me, jrosen at constitutioncenter.org. Thanks, and look forward to hearing from you soon. I'm Tom Donnelly, Senior Fellow for Constitutional Studies at the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. Jeffrey Rosen is away this week. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. On today's show, we explore the life and legacy of John Marshall, an early Chief Justice of the Supreme Court who also played other important roles in the life of the early republic, from soldier to lawyer to political leader and more. Today, May 25th, in partnership with the John Marshall Foundation, the Constitution Center opened a new feature exhibit entitled John Marshall, Patriot, Statesman, Chief Justice. The exhibit features nearly 30 historic documents and rare artifacts related to Marshall's historic career. What should citizens know about John Marshall and why... Is he still important to us today? Joining us to discuss Marshall's life and legacy are two of the leading constitutional scholars in the country. On the phone from lovely Chapel Hill, North Carolina, is Michael Gerhard. He's the scholar in residence at the Constitution Center, but he's also the Samuel Ash Distinguished Professor in Constitutional Law and Director of the Program in Law and Government at the University of North Carolina School of Law. And joining us uh, by Skype from Richmond, Virginia, is Kevin Walsh. He is the Professor of Law at the University of Richmond School of Law. He's also uh, the curator of the new Marshall exhibit here at the National Constitution Center. Mike, Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Pleasure. So, Kevin, we're, we're going to spend uh, much of our time together today tracing John Marshall's life and career, but I, I'd like to begin with the big picture, uh, namely Marshall's constitutional vision. So, broadly speaking, how would you describe Marshall's approach to the Constitution and his vision for the early republic? Well, one way to think about Marshall... And where he fits in with some of the other figures from the founding era and the early republic is to think about Valley Forge. He was at Valley Forge as part of the Continental Army, a young officer. Uh, he was there with Washington and with Hamilton. And you can think of Marshall's politics as very similar to Washington's and Hamilton's. So a, a nationalist, someone who thought that we needed a real national government, uh, didn't have to rely on the states, right? They had experienced some of the problems of having to uh, beg for money and troops and deal with the Continental Congress. And so they understood Hamilton, Washington, Marshall, the need for a vigorous national government. Thanks so much for that, Kevin. Mike, same question to you. How would you characterize Marshall's constitutional vision? And, and sort of similar to what Kevin said, how would you compare it to other key members of the founding generation, like Washington and Hamilton on the one, one hand, but also Thomas Jefferson on the other? Well, yeah, um, I, of course, Kevin nailed it uh, on the head. I mean, uh, John Marshall is, in a sense, also to take this from the musical Hamilton, he's sort of in the room. He, he's a presence that, uh, around these other great figures, and and so he also uh, shares a vision with them. Uh, his vision is of a strong national government. Uh, we all have to remember, of course, 
the United States has to have a beginning. And at the beginning, John Marshall happens to be there. He happens to be there on the side of Hamilton and the side of Washington. Other people trying to put together this new uh, federal government uh, that has to not only sort of get up on its legs, so to speak, but it has to be able to sort of move around, has to be able to do things. So Marshall has a remarkable vision, and at key moments in early American history, John Marshall happens to be there. He happens to be not only in Congress, but he also happens to be close to all the different individuals who are putting together this first national government. He's actually asked by uh, George Washington early on to join the administration. He keeps turning down opportunities to join the administration. So all these people not only know uh, Marshall, but they also have tremendous confidence. He shares their, their vision in this new constitution's validity, and in particular the national government and what, it's, um, what they hope it does. Uh, they hope it has energy. They hope it is able to sort of handle a lot of the different challenges the new federal government is facing. And John Marshall is going to be making key decisions along the way. Thanks so much, Mike. Now, you know, we often think of John Marshall primarily as as the great chief justice, but as Mike and, and Kevin just suggested, he had a rich career prior to his ascension to the court. So let's just begin briefly at the beginning. Kevin, where was where was Marshall from? What what, what sort of family does he come from? What were his career prospects uh, at the beginning of his life? Sure. He was born in 1755 on what was then the frontier in what is now Fauquier County, Virginia. So he's sort of proto-Lincolnian in that sense, right? Born more or less in a, in a log cabin in this sparsely settled uh, frontier area. His dad was a, uh, a very respectable guy. They, they uh, were not uh, wealthy aristocrats, um, but he did hold key government positions. Uh, his father, Thomas Marshall, uh, a man that John Marshall said was an abler man than himself. Uh, John was the first of 15 children born to uh, the Marshalls, and uh, he was educated, as he said, he was destined uh, from infancy for the bar. So his father superintended his education. He had access to Lord Fairfax's uh, library, uh, which was very helpful. Thomas Marshall was one of the first subscribers to the uh, American edition of Blackstone's Commentaries on Law. But as Marshall notes, as he uh, grew uh, into, as he approached uh, manhood, war was on the horizon. And so he says, I put down my legal studies and, and my Blackstone and really studied the political essays of the day and uh, exercised with the local militia and learned a lot uh, from that militia experience and later uh, into the army. So it's someone who was really groomed to be a, a lawyer, uh, but had his first legal job, actually, before he had a law license. He was a deputy JAG in the Army. So that's sort of what propelled him into the future. Another way to, to think about the influence of, of war and the military experience is to recognize that his formal legal education was just a few months of lectures at the College of William and Mary while he was on leave from fighting in the Continental Army. So in, in the spring of 1780, he is hearing law lectures from Chancellor George Wythe, and uh, at the same time, starting to court his uh, future wife, Polly. Uh, and then after that, he receives his law license, but can't practice because the Virginia courts are still closed. It's only after the surrender at Yorktown the next year 
that he's able to start his law practice, which then really is propelled by his buddies from the army who need a good lawyer. Excellent. Uh, so, Mike, we, we sort of heard at the at, at, at the beginning um, that Marshall's uh, views of the, the 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 necessary powers of the national government were shaped at least in part by his uh, experience in the American Revolution. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about about that, um, and also, you know, why Marshall thought a new framework of government was necessary, and what role he played in helping push for the ratification of the U.S. Constitution? Sure. Um, so, John Marshall, of course, is going to be present at all the critical moments uh, along the way towards the United States Constitution ratification. He is uh, going to develop a very close relationship with his idol, George Washington, and also is working with a lot of the other well-known politicians and leaders in Virginia in this era to begin to think about how do we form a new country, how do we form uh, what kinds of documents or uh, will be the governing documents uh, of our country. Um, early on, he is selected, for example, to be one of the people that represents um, Virginia uh, as a delegate uh, to the Virginia Convention. Uh, and this is after the Constitution itself has been drafted in Philadelphia, and it comes to the different states for ratification. Marshall's there working with James Madison and Edmund Randolph, among others, to f- help um, lead the fight for ratification in Virginia. That's ultimately a successful fight. In the course of that fight, he's going to defend, among other things, Article 3, which has to do with establishing the federal judiciary. Um, He's also um, opposing, at that point, Patrick Henry and others. But eventually, Virginia, by a relatively close vote, um, votes to ratify uh, the Constitution. But along the way, Marshall's helping to establish uh, a new party called the Federalist Party. And that Federalist Party is going to represent... um, in the sense, the federal government. Uh, it will be, uh, um, and that's the beginning of the sort of the, the vision. Uh, the Federalist Party is there, in a sense, to sort of help implement this vision of the new Constitution, put it into effect, and those people representing the Federalist Party, like Marshall, in a sense, share that vision of a strong national government, which will be in, at, at, at the expense, to some extent, of, of state sovereignty. And that puts him in opposition to a distant cousin of his named Thomas Jefferson, who has a slightly different constitutional vision, and their conflict obviously is going to be very important for shaping early American history. Thanks for that, Mike. And so, so Kevin, uh, feel free to hop in. Uh, a- a- any, anything else that you, you'd like to say about uh, Marshall's role in um, ratifying the Constitution? But expanding that out a bit further, what, what are some of the other uh, roles that Marshall played prior to becoming Chief Justice of the United States? Marshall was known almost immediately as a superb lawyer. He was incredibly persuasive. He was not particularly, uh, he, he wouldn't be your jury guy, right? That would be Patrick Henry. But he would actually take on some cases with Patrick Henry. They were kind of an early dream team. He, Henry would be for the jury, Marshall would be for the judges. And he had this capacity really to lay out his premises and then march you through with fairly iron logic to his conclusions. And he did this not just at the ratification convention, but also throughout the 1790s as you had bitter 
partisan fights as the as as Michael alluded to the emergence of these two great parties the Federalists and the Republicans really in opposition to Hamilton's financial plan there were other things that the administration under Washington and then Adams uh, did that were unpopular and every step of the way Marshall stepped out into public and defended the actions of the Washington administration. A really good example of this is the Jay Treaty, which uh, was very unpopular because it was, uh, uh, among other things, it required repayment of debts to British creditors, which you can imagine having just vanquished them uh, in a war, having to pay pay them money wasn't very popular. Uh, He defended the constitutionality of that Generally, and and this time, too, he's corresponding with Hamilton to coordinate their message. Uh, There's a a funny anecdote that really captures Marshall's style. Uh, I'm not sure it's true. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's not true, Um, but it captures the truth. And this actually comes from Joseph Story, who is his colleague on the Supreme Court uh, from uh, for almost, uh, well, for over 20 years. And Story among his other jobs, taught constitutional law at Harvard Law School. And in his class was a future president, Rutherford B. Hayes. And we have Hayes's law school notebooks. And he says uh, that the the, the story that uh, story would tell them about Marshall. And it's an anecdote about Thomas Jefferson. So here's here's the quote. Thomas Jefferson said, quote, when conversing with Marshall, I never admit anything. So sure as you admit any position to be good, no matter how remote from the conclusion he seeks to establish, you are gone. So great is his sophistry, you must never give him an affirmative answer or you will be forced to grant his conclusion. Why, if you were to ask me if it were daylight or not, I'd reply, sir, I don't know. I can't tell. (laughs) And that really does capture uh, his uh, style of reasoning. The reason I say it's probably untrue is, as, as Michael alluded to, there was a fairly strained relationship between Marshall and Jefferson, and they probably wouldn't be casually conversing uh, about, well, anything. <laughs> well, thank you for that, that Kevin. And, and, and Mike, is, is there anything else that you'd like to add about the, 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 the Marshall-Jefferson relationship? Any other uh, anecdotes worth sharing? Well, there, that's a, there's a whole book, and we'll have an exhibit to explore some of that. Um, I'm, the, the, it, it is a... In some respects, it's it's a strained relationship, but I'm not sure people fully understand how it got strained. Um, But there's no doubt that it is strained, and it's going to be persistently strained as each of them rises uh, in power. Um, But uh, one thing to keep in mind is that Marshall uh, has a very happy marriage, by the way, has a number of kids, and in order to help support them is turning down opportunities to go uh, serve at the nation's capital, um, turns down different positions in the federal government. Um, but as he does that, of course, Jefferson is flourishing, in a sense, in Washington, eventually um, is going to become president. But uh, before he, uh, Jefferson becomes president, Marshall does find himself eventually sort of accepting the opportunity to go to Washington for a little while as a uh, member of Congress, and then for also a very short time will serve as Secretary of State for John Adams, those are going to set the stage for what's going to come later, uh, his chief justiceship. Uh, but along the way, in each and every one of those positions, as, as Kevin was suggesting, um, Marshall is a very forceful advocate for the United, United States Constitution. It's something we shouldn't forget. 
he's um, a very articulate defender of not only the legitimacy of that document, but also um, all the different things that have to come into play in order to ensure it gets off the ground and it works. And people keep turning to Marshall to help them get that new government off the ground. And eventually, of course, he's going to play a critical role as Chief Justice. That's, a, that, that's excellent, Mike. And, and, and Mike, can, can you give us a, a, a sense why in you – know, we had Carol Birkin here uh, last week to talk about her new book, A Sovereign People, which talk about some of the crises of the 1790s. Notably, she talks about, uh, as to Marshall, Marshall's role in the XYZ affair. Um, uh, but, but, you know, more, more broadly, she gave a sense of how for Marshall, for Washington, for Hamilton, people who believed in the Constitution, it was a time of great peril where they were concerned about the survival of the republic. Can you talk about – you know, some of the, the crises that were swirling and why it was so important to be advocating for the Constitution at that time? Well, there are a lot of crises. Some of them are international, the, the new United States relationship to uh, foreign countries. Obviously, relationships with France and Britain tend to sort of come and go. They tend to be particularly strained with Great Britain. Um, and uh, since France is an enemy of Great Britain, to, uh, and, of course, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and so Marshall um, ends up... Um, uh, well, the, France ends up to some extent as a friend, but then because of uh, the need to have uh, Americans represent uh, uh, the United States in negotiations with France, John Adams appoints a three-member commission, which you just alluded to. Marshall's a member of that commission. They go to France. They encounter some, a corrupt administration. They help publicize that in the United States. And that, to some extent, helps uh, Marshall's reputation. But also along the way, um, we should also just note that the early, in the early American history, um, we had the Articles of Confederation as the first governing document for, for what would become the United States. There are problems with that document, uh, and those problems get fixed in the form of the United States Constitution. Marshall obviously helps uh, the ratification of the Constitution. But then there are questions um, we should keep in mind with regard to the ratification. Some states don't want to join it because it doesn't have a Bill of Rights. Some, state, some other people don't want to join it because it may, may have within it the, the seeds of, um, that are, will become a strong national government. They prefer a weaker national government. So Marshall, in a sense, is navigating those different conflicts as he's arguing for the United States Constitution. And, again, he's one of the real forceful, well, really prominent advocates for the Constitution. And everybody, including Marshall, including uh, Jefferson and Madison, are aware of that. And this is a, uh, so eventually when... Um, Jefferson comes into power, it's going to coincide with Marshall's arrival as Chief Justice, and obviously that's going to be uh, quite a dramatic time. Absolutely. And, and so, Kevin, let, let's, let's, let's get to the main event. Let's get to Marshall as Chief Justice, and let's just begin at the beginning there. Um, why did Adams choose Marshall as Chief Justice, and, and, and sort of where did, at that point in time, Marshall fit in the, the Federalist firmament? So, as, as Mike mentioned, he was Secretary of State under uh, John Adams. And so as Secretary of State, it fell to John Marshall to report back to the president that John Jay had turned down the position. So the position of Chief Justice had become open upon the resignation of Oliver Ellsworth. And so this was coming near the end of the Adams administration, and Adams really wanted to put someone in there uh, that shared his constitutional vision. And that constitutional vision was, was shared by Marshall. He was, you might say, a moderate Federalist. So there were factions within the Federalist Party, say the really, really strong Federalists, on the outs with the Adams administration, and that would include someone like Alexander Hamilton. Uh, Marshall 
was a bridge between Adams and Hamilton, somewhere between them uh, politically, I suppose. And uh, when he reported that John Jay had turned down the job, reportedly Adams said, well, then I suppose I must offer the position to you. And he said, I, I, I accepted. And this was really only the, I don't know, third position that he had accepted uh, of many that had been offered to him. He had been offered uh, a seat on the Supreme Court previously, but then ended up running for Congress, as Mike alluded to. Uh, he had turned down the attorney generalship, had been offered to him by uh, Washington. So those offers, I think, give you a sense of the esteem in which he was held and the understanding of his talents and his politics and his constitutional vision. So he takes office on February 4th, 1801 is the first time he sits. He's still the secretary of state at the time. Jefferson uh, had been elected after a really confusing and turbulent election of 1800. Jefferson asked him to stay on for a little bit just to, uh, for, for the transition. And so it's, uh, while he's wearing the hat of the Secretary of State and the robes of the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, that's when he swears in uh, Jefferson on March 4th, 1801, in one I think of the most interesting artifacts or documents in this exhibit at the National Constitution Center is a letter that Marshall is writing to his fellow XYZ affair envoy, uh, Charles Coatsworth Pinckney. And the letter starts by saying, well, I'm about to go swear in President Jefferson. And then there's a break in the letter. And then he says, I've just come back from swearing in the president. And he offers some reflections on the future of the country. And things were very unsettled because this was the first transition of power between major uh, political uh, opposition parties. Right. The new administration under Jefferson had run very hard against Adams and the Federalist Party. It was bitter. It was ugly and it was turbulent. And now uh, you have Marshall ensconced as chief justice where he'll remain for the next three and a half decades. And you have President Jefferson charting a new direction for the country. That's the excellent frame for this part of the part of the discussion, and and so we get this sense of, of Marshall occupying the chief justiceship at this transition point in American constitutional history. One thing I'd like to place on the table, Mike, is also to we we think of John Marshall. He's often called the great chief justice, and I think part of the uh, reason for that is is this idea that he really built up the institutional reputation of the court. Can you talk a little bit about where the Supreme Court uh, stood in sort of the constitutional order at the time Chief Justice Marshall takes the reins? Yeah, in fact, uh, it, it's pretty much encapsulated in the fact that it was in the basement. Um, <laughs> um, and so it was basement of the Capitol. Um, and that pretty much tells you almost everything you need to know about the Supreme Court at that time. It was... Um, Obviously, one of the three branches established by the United States Constitution, um, and it had some important responsibilities, uh, but it was not the place where a lot of people wanted to end up. Um, you would have like tenure, which is a great thing, but it didn't pay all that much. Um, and most people, for example, um, John Jay, even, even when they were there, weren't necessarily happy being there. So John Jay, the first Chief Justice, actually ends up leaving to go on to do other things. Um, so Marshall, in some respects, um, takes it not only 
he actually he does take it, of course, but he takes it after some thought. Um, he's not sure whether or not it's going to work out. He's got a biography of Washington he wants to try and put together, and he's thinking, okay, well, maybe this will give me time to do that. But at the same time, um, Marshall's aware that this Supreme Court um, really needs some uh, building up. It needs to be put together. Uh, nobody's really sort of thought about how to uh, uh, construct this place as an institution. And so Marshall is going to be, bring to the court a vision that isn't, it hasn't necessarily been there yet, which is how do we function as a court, as a collegial body? And as he gets there, the, lit the litigation, which um, uh, Kevin was describing, the litigation that's going to rise over um, Marshall's um, trying to sort of fill out the commissions for a number of federal judgeships that uh, Adams has appointed, that litigation is making its way to the Supreme Court. Um, and Marshall is sitting there. Now, Jefferson knows this. His Secretary of State, Madison, knows this as well. They're not particularly happy with that. So along the way, they start abolishing the term of the Supreme Court, which means this is, a this is an institution that's doing nothing. Um, so they're kind of like twiddling their thumbs. Um, and this is the scenario uh, that we've got when the case finally comes forth, this case called Marbury versus Madison, which is going to be sort of a, uh, a big case for the court. There's another earlier case called Stewart versus Laird, which deals with partly what the Republican Congress is trying to do, eliminating some of those judges, judgeships. So Marshall finally gets his first opinion, which is going to be Marbury versus Madison, and that's going to be a critical moment in American history for a couple reasons. Uh, maybe one of the most important is Marshall's going to produce an opinion for the entire court. Entire court. Up until that time, all the justices had written separate opinions in the British style, which meant the only way you could figure out what the court did is you had to read them all and add them up and figure out, okay, what does this mean? Marshall says, look, if we speak with one voice, we're more powerful. That seemingly little thing is going to be revolutionary, and it's going to bring tremendous attention to the Supreme Court. Thank you for that, Mike. And and, and so, Kevin, uh, Mike is placed on the table, Marber, the great Marbury versus uh, Madison. Do, do you want to just talk a little bit about, uh, a little bit more about what, uh, what, what happened in, in that case, some of the, 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 the factual context, and then um, a, a bit about why it, it, it was such an important decision? Sure. This really arose out of uh, the attempt by William Marbury, a Federalist, who had been appointed as Justice of the Peace for D.C., uh, to get his commission. So the commission was signed and the seal of the United States was affixed to it, but it wasn't delivered. And uh, that's where things stood when Adams left the White House and Jefferson took over. And uh, the, we don't know actually what happened to the commission. Um, Marbury was trying to, to get his hands on it. And the way that he did that was by filing in the Supreme Court's original jurisdiction, so usually we think of the Supreme Court as an appellate court, something that hears appeals of other decisions. Well, Marbury goes directly to the Supreme Court in the first instance, and he files something called a writ of mandamus, right? It's a kind of order to do something. And in this case, it's a writ of mandamus that he wants issued against Madison uh, because Madison is the secretary of state who is responsible then for uh, delivering the commission. And there's several big questions in, in the case. Probably the biggest going into it is, could the Supreme Court order the executive branch to do something like this, right, to, to uh, deliver this commission? Do they have the power to order around the executive branch? And what Marshall does is 
frames it up in such a way that he says, yes, indeed, Marbury had a right to his commission. You know the song Signed, Sealed, and Delivered? Well, it turns out signed and sealed is enough. It didn't have to be delivered to vest his legal right. So he says Marbury was entitled to get, to, to get his commission. He then says that, yes, in fact, a writ of mandamus is the right kind of thing to uh, remedy the violation of his right. So, yes, indeed, they, the, the, uh, it is appropriate for the judiciary to order the executive branch to do something like this. And everything then looked headed, bad for the administration. But then right at the end, Marshall says this court does not have jurisdiction to grant the writ of mandamus. And it's in that holding about the court's lack of power to issue the writ of mandamus or jurisdiction to issue the writ uh, that the exercise of judicial review happens. So federal courts have to have jurisdiction that is set forth in the Constitution and then in a federal statute. So Congress had uh, passed a law in, in called the Judiciary Act of 1789, which seemed, Marshall said, to authorize the Supreme Court to issue the writ of mandamus. But that statutory permission, that statutory grant of jurisdiction, exceeded what the court was allowed to have under Article Three of the Constitution. So it's a, a peculiar decision in that when you say who won and who lost, uh, well, Jefferson was fuming because here you have this extensive opinion basically saying that his administration uh, broke the law, violated this guy's legal rights. But there was nothing for Jefferson to defy because Marshall pulls up short from actually ordering the executive to do something. So he claims all the power to do it and then says, nope, we can't do it here. And in that sort of self-abnegation or self-limitation, he's exercising for the court this power of judicial review. It's really a, a sort of multifaceted, complex, and fascinating case. Absolutely, Kevin. And, and Mike, anything else you'd like to add about the, the, the importance of Marbury, uh, what it says about uh, uh, John Marshall as, as, as Chief Justice? And, and also, if there's anything else you'd like to add about uh, the Jeffersonian challenge to uh, Marshall's court, Stewart, Stewart versus Laird, or anything along those lines? Uh, sure. I mean, Kevin's done an excellent job sort of giving us a sense of what the, the case is about. There are a few other sort of details that may be of, of interest. I mean, uh, one is just the speed with which the court moved. Um, so Marshall had this idea, which also turned out to be quite uh, revolutionary, which, uh, which was to have everybody on the court try and stay together in the same boarding house. This would help uh, with collegiality. It would also help people focus on the job. So this case gets litigated very quickly, in a sense. I mean, it's faster than in any case today would typically get litigated. Granted, it's a case, as Kevin said, a case of original jurisdiction heard first and only by the Supreme Court of the United States. But Marshall moves very quickly after the argument to uh, produce an opinion. Um, and that in itself is unusual. I think it was just a matter of weeks, maybe even just two weeks. Um, so um, we don't typically see that today uh, from the United States Supreme Court, that speed with which the court moves. And of course, Marshall also is under threat at the time um, he's writing this. It's kind of a oblique threat from uh, Jefferson and Madison that, you know, if you don't do what we'd like, we're, we'd consider your impeachment. And so the Republicans in Congress at that time, particularly in the uh, Senate, but it's really in Congress generally, 
are beginning to think about whether they can use this mechanism of impeachment to get off courts judges and justices they don't like. So almost roughly about the same time this case is happening, Congress is beginning to kind of rev up the impeachment mechanisms to go after some Federalist judges. Our first, um, and, and the Supreme Court justice uh, named Samuel Chase is going to be um, kind of the target of one of the first impeachment attempts. A really highly partisan judge on the United States Supreme Court. He's going to be acquitted by the House, ultimately, uh, excuse me, impeached by the House, acquitted in the Senate. Um, but that, and that episode itself is an important vindication of judicial independence. But Marshall doesn't seem to sort of be somebody easily threatened. We have to remember, this is a guy who went to war. He's a pretty strong individual, pretty courageous individual. He's not really in easily or at all intimidated. So what we see Marshall do then is kind of stare down Jefferson to some extent, and Madison produced this opinion, which is, again, a little bit awkward because it ultimately decides after slapping the two of them around, the court can't do anything. But Marshall, in a sense, has his way there. And a real important part of that way, again, is it helps articulate the foundations for modern judicial review, the court's ability to review the constitutionality of federal laws. And Marshall's done all that very quickly, not even barely a month into, his, uh, into this, this term of the Supreme Court. Thanks for that, Mike. And 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 so, Kevin, uh, Mike has really given us a, 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 a sense of um, uh, Marshall's almost uh, uh, his his statesmanship on the court, his ability to um, uh, work his way through great political peril. Um, I, I I'm curious if you could maybe just tell us a bit more about you know Marshall's leadership style on the court, Marshall the man, and and how over time he's going to have all of these appointees coming from Jefferson and Madison and Monroe and Jackson and sort of how he continued to hold the court together. Yes, it, it really is a uh, an achievement that is a sign in some ways of Marshall's success that he's less well-known in the sense that he was able to identify himself with the court right, and get the other justices to identify with the institution. And then he identified the court with the Constitution and then the Constitution with the people. And so his style uh, was one of working in a group. But as the leader, I kind of think of him as a team captain. Okay, he had the esteem, the respect uh, and the skills to lead this legal team that is at the Supreme Court. Mike mentioned their uh, boarding together, and that was really important because they had to cohere. Uh, 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 they, they had to come together as a group. Marshall unified them against the external threat so that they could present uh, this uh, uh, sort of united front against the various forces that were uh, hostile to them. And Marshall led also by example. So although he had this great reputation for sociability and for uh, drinking Madeira and hanging out with the guys, he was a workhorse. Mike alluded to the, the, how, how quickly he produced the opinion in Marbury versus Madison. This was a pattern. So M Marshall really took the lead and led by example and really recognized the importance of bringing them all together. You know, we mentioned that he did, didn't have a great relationship with Jefferson. That is truly exceptional for Marshall because he had superb relationships with just about 
everyone, including people who had very different politics. So one of the one of the really good examples of this is uh, Patrick Henry. So Michael mentioned how. Patrick Henry was leading the opposition to the Constitution, uh, to its ratification in Virginia. This is back in the 1780s. And Marshall is on the side that's proposing uh, ratification and supporting it. And uh, they, though, went on to work together, as I mentioned earlier, on um, some legal matters. And it's actually Henry's endorsement uh, that ends up putting Marshall over the top when he's running for Congress. So here you have a guy who is persistent, who has a lot of friends, is very skilled at building relationships and working within institutions to build up those institutions. Excellent. Thanks, Kevin. And and so we, we've talked uh, about Marshall the Man and his life. We've talked about Marbury versus uh, Madison. You know, when I think of the Marshall Court, the next case, big case that comes to mind is uh, McCullough v. Maryland. And uh, uh, Mike, do you want to talk a little bit about what was going on in that case and, and, and why it's important and what it suggests about uh, Chief Justice Marshall? Sure. I mean, um, you know, of course, all these are cases that probably could take up weeks <laughs> exactly. to talk about um, in, in books, but they're, they're great cases, and it, just to sort of really drive home the point again, I mean, each one of these opinions that Marshall writes turns out not just to be uh, important, but they are almost timeless in a sense, and we still read them and study them today. It's quite a testimony to the person, and the only person known as the great Chief Justice, and yet another um, feather in his cap, so to speak, is this opinion he's going to write in McCulloch versus Maryland. This deals with the constitutionality of something called the National Bank. Actually, it's, um, you can see it in Philadelphia, among other, uh, as one in many places to see. Um, and the National Bank is a peculiar kind of federal institution that was created early on after the Constitution's ratification. And the National Bank does many things, that, uh, one of which is, uh, it, of course, has, it's a place where you can put federal money uh, may get, also give out loans and things, um, but the national bank, the national bank's constitutionality, constitutionality has been a subject of great disagreement between uh, the Federalist Party that Marshall came from, and by the way, the Federalist Party is beginning to die after Marshall gets to the Supreme Court, and the opposition party or Jefferson's party, um, and so the arguments of the national bank are not new. Um, there's a question about, of course, where does the federal power come from to establish a national bank? If you read the Constitution, particularly Article One, which deals with congressional powers, doesn't have the words national bank in there. So the question is, well, where does the authority come from? And um, and so there is this long-standing argument. Some presidents eventually believe that you can find that authority uh, in a couple different places, particularly a combination of federal powers for example, to regulate interstate commerce, and this other clause in the Constitution called the Necessary and Proper Clause. Congress has the additional power to be able to pass laws that are necessary and proper. And so there's a question, okay, what does that clause mean? The question about the meaning of that clause and the, the constitutionality of the National Bank come to a head with the rechartering of the National Bank. There's litigation over it. ends up in the Supreme Court. Representing the National Bank is the great Daniel Webster, and the argument is being put forward to the Supreme Court uh, about how this power, how the federal government would have this power to establish the bank based on a particular understanding of the necessary, necessary and proper clause, the word necessary meaning basically convenient or useful rather than a more restrictive meaning, which is being put forward by the lawyer on the other side, Luther Martin. Martin's an anti-federalist. He's arguing, look, uh, Congress should only have the powers um, to do things that are expressly laid out in the Constitution. If it's not expressly laid out, Congress doesn't have the power. So the difference between 
what Webster and um, Martin are arguing is, in a sense, a difference over whether or not the federal government has implied powers. Can it do something that's not expressly set forth, but would be able, to, something it could do in conjunction with the other powers to help effectuate them? And this is going to be the winning argument in the case of McCulloch versus Maryland. The court's going to uphold the constitutionality of the National Bank, and that's a huge shot in the arm for the federal government. The federal government just got stronger, and it just got stronger at the expense of states. That turns out to be a really big development in constitutional history. Thanks, Mike. And, and Kevin, anything else to add about McCullough, either the historical context or, or, or sort of where it fits into the, the Marshallian uh, constitutional legacy? Mike has really uh, done a good job of explaining the holding on federal power. And that's the one that we uh, teach is still to this day. And uh, the formulation that was given by Marshall uh, for P Congress's power under the Necessary and Proper Clause is still what we call good law. So uh, this is an enduring thing. Something that was really tested from McCulloch versus Maryland uh, that is even more fundamental in some ways was Marshall's disquisition on the nature of our union. Who formed the government? Was the, was the federal government formed by the states, right? Was it an agreement or compact among the states? Or did it proceed directly from the people? This was the biggest dispute in constitutional history, really from the founding all the way through Reconstruction, you might say, as uh, Michael Stokes Paulson sometimes says, this was a question that was only settled by the case of Grant versus Lee, right, with the, with the, the Civil War. And Marshall, in 1819, is articulating a view of the nature of the Union as one government that proceeds directly from the people, that is not a mere agreement or compact among the states, because if it is an agreement or compact, well, if the states made it, then the states can walk away from it, right? Secession. And so Marshall spends a lot of time in McCulloch versus Maryland discoursing and describing uh, an account of the union. And I think it's this account of the union that really provides the connective tissue for the country that brings us from the nationalism of a George Washington right, to the nationalism of an Abraham Lincoln. When you have Lincoln, his political education and legal education, he came up on Marshall opinions, right? And you can draw a direct line, really, from Lincoln's account of the Union in the Gettysburg Address, right, government of the people, by the people, for the people, backwards through time, through a famous speech by Daniel Webster in the Senate, uh, then back through to McCulloch versus Maryland. So, some it's it's not just a, a Supreme Court opinion, not just a statement uh, of the law, but as some call it, a a, a state paper, right? A, a statesmanship about the nature of our union really um, holds us together intellectually uh, through the Civil War. Well, thank you so much for that, Kevin. Now, now, Mike, we we talked a bit at the the outset about where the Supreme Court was when John Marshall took over as Chief Justice. Just as we get uh, near the close here, uh, can you? Just give us a sense of, of where the court was when, when, he, when Marshall left it. Sure. Um, so Marshall, of course, um, it's important to remember, was the last Federalist um, appointed to the Supreme Court. Uh, now, Adams, of course, did that in part because he wanted a, uh, somebody with that kind of vision and that kind of loyalty, in a sense, on the court. 
But one thing to understand about Marshall is he's occupying the Supreme Court at the time, and he's Chief Justice for over 30 years, and all the new people joining the court over that time, really I think all of them, are coming from presidents who don't share Adams' vision and don't share Marshall's vision. So the court, uh, over the course of those 35 or so years, um, is moving uh, sort of incrementally, um, that, or I should say the composition of the court is moving seemingly away from that vision that Marshall had, but we should note that there's already a pattern developing. The pattern developing in a lot of these Marshall opinions, they are, of course, court opinions, uh, is that of a very strong national government. And Marshall's doing this with a number of colleagues who supposedly were put there to disagree with Marshall. In the course of his remarkable career, 35 years, he dissents in, in a total of one case in constitutional law. That's remarkable. And one of his best friends is Joseph Story, referred to earlier, I think, by Kevin. And Story, of course, was appointed by Madison. One would think Story would not agree with Marshall, yet Story ends up revering Marshall, dedicates his commentaries on the Constitution to Marshall. So it's a, it's a reflection of the remarkable influence and ability Marshall had to work with these other people and achieve unanimity oftentimes, and it, it was often, not, but not always, um, unanimity in favor of this great vision, and by the time Marshall leaves the court after about 35 years, it's a much stronger federal government, and, we, uh, and, and a lot of people owe, think, uh, believe we owe that uh, to, to what Marshall was doing on the court, because these are enduring Supreme Court opinions, and he, he, again, is the only justice thought to be the great Chief Justice, and that's by everybody else who serves on the Supreme Court. Well, thank you so much for that, Mike, and, and thank you both for this superb conversation. I'd like to now turn to uh, closing arguments, um, and I'm just going to ask you each the, the, the same question, uh, beginning with you, Kevin. Now, obviously, uh, we could spend weeks talking about the Marshall Court and the various opinions. We were able to touch on specifically Marbury and McCullough. Uh, I, I'd just like to ask you, Kevin, you know, if, if, if we, you were to uh, uh, instruct our audience to uh, read one additional Marshall opinion uh, in their spare time, uh, which, uh, which would it be and why? The opinion that I would recommend reading is in a case called Cohen's versus Virginia. So this is a case from 1821, a couple years after McCulloch. When McCulloch is issued, uh, it is the subject of great uh, attacks in the newspapers, even leading Marshall, believe it or not, to write under a pseudonym in defense of what the court uh, had done. He thought that th this fight about the nature of the union was uh, just so important that he had to counter the spirit of disunion that he detected in the criticisms of McCullough. Well, in Cohen's versus Virginia, he has a chance again to articulate his understanding of the nature of the union in a case that presents for the first time the question of whether the Supreme Court can exercise appellate jurisdiction to review the federal questions that were decided in state criminal prosecutions, right? So the ability to take a case that had made its way, well, it didn't go that far, but, but that, that, that uh, had come up through the state system, right? Someone who's prosecuted and then raises a federal defense and they lose in the state courts. Can the Supreme Court take jurisdiction of that case even though a state is a party? Right. So can the Supreme Court 
order a state what to do uh, in a criminal prosecution when that depends on on federal law. This was another one of these cases that was incredibly uh, controversial, uh, but Marshall sort of patiently unfolds the logic of uh, the union as he understands it to have been formed from the Constitution. And this is another one of those uh, judicial masterpieces uh, that it really bears uh, reading and rereading. Thank you, Kevin. And, and Mike, uh, put your law professor cap on for us for a second here and, and give an assignment to our readers. Uh, what, what Marshall opinion would you have them read? Well, that's a, that's a tough one to come up with, uh, only one. But um, I, I will go, I think, with a fairly obvious one, but it's, it's a very important one still in American constitutional law, and that's Gibbons versus Ogden. Um, so Gibbons versus Ogden is the first time the Supreme Court of the United States is um, asked to give meaning to a particular congressional power. This is the power that Congress has got to regulate interstate commerce or to regulate a commerce among the states. Um, seemingly technical language, but it turns out, um, if we kind of fast forward a little bit, the most common authority that Congress uses to enact a law is the power to regulate interstate commerce. If you don't, if you don't know or can't imagine why is Congress regulating a particular area, just ask yourself, is it possible this could fall within that domain? The answer, more often than not, is yes in the modern era. And it begins with this opinion. In fact, Felix Frankfurter, who will later serve on the court in the 1930s and later, um, Frankfurter will say it was remarkable that Marshall looks at this clause and sees within it something that he nails down for all time. Frankfurter, who was not easily impressed, was blown away by what Marshall does. He looks at this clause and basically says, uh, I'm going to define each word here. You know, and, this clause, and the case actually dealt with, um, uh, a waterway that's shared by um, New York and uh, New Jersey. They've often fought over um, who owns the water that they share, and there's a conflict between a federal license and a state um, license, in a sense, to use that waterway, which is going to prevail. Marshall basically says, look, the federal license is going to prevail because it falls, it, its authority derives from this power to regulate interstate commerce, which in Marshall's view is the power, and he defines each word, the ability to be able to define the rules um, that pertain to commerce, which he defines as intercourse, that concerns more than one state. After a definition like that, it's hard to imagine what kinds of things wouldn't fall under that definition, some purely intrastate things, but what would those be? The rest of American history is going to try and figure out what those things are, but Marshall lays the foundation for the single most powerful authority Congress has to regulate. Thank you so much for that, Mike. And Mike, Kevin, thank you so much for taking the time to join us and talk about Chief Justice Marshall's life and legacy. Thank you. Well, thank you, Tom. Today's show was engineered by David Stotz and produced by Scott Bomboy and Nakanjo Iannacci. The host of We the People is Jeffrey Rosen. Continue today's conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at ConstitutionCTR. Sign up to receive Constitution Weekly, our email roundup of constitutional news and debate at bit.ly backslash constitutionweekly. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast, Live in America's Town Hall, on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster of podcasts at panoply.fm. And finally, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate and education. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tom Donnelly. <laughs>